Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the mutiny on the Batavia. Uh, this was uh, a mutiny that took place on a, a Dutch merchant ship called the Batavia, uh, and it is, I tell you what, absolute horror story, absolute horror. It was a maiden, it was a maiden voyage, and and this ship just, it was you know, in, in quite a literal sense a horror story. It was it was uh, it was really horrific. Tale of a, it's a tale of an adventure, of treachery, and uh, and of course, horrible murder. And and, and the the murders in this story are. are Quite particularly horrible. In fact, this you know this is not an episode I would recommend for the faint at heart. Not a recommend. Not an episode I'd recommend for uh, you know people who sort of maybe of a, of a of a delicate disposition. Because uh, as I say, the murder, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty horrible uh, this time around. Anyway, what happened was this: the newly built Batavia. It was loaded up with uh, with a crew, some soldiers, and a handful of passengers, uh, along with a, a great big stack of treasure, and it was sent to the Dutch East Indies, or today what we'd call Indonesia. Uh, and the ship never arrived. After the machinations and, and manipulations of some of the people aboard, it was instead wrecked off of the west coast of Australia. And after being wrecked, scenes of unbelievable, brutal barbarism unfolded, uh, which is, of, co- of course, you know what leads us to all the horrible murder. Um, it's an astonishing story. Uh, it's got a fair few fist, uh, twists and turns here. And, and of course, uh, you know, I know the, the good listeners of this dumb podcast love a bit of the old naval history. We are... Yep, can't keep can't keep us can't keep us away from the seas apparently. So uh, so set yourselves settle yourselves in here for a ripper of a tale, and, and let's get to it and find out what this whole affair was about. We're going all the way back to 1628 here, and specifically to the 27th of October when the Batavia set sail from Texel in the newly independent Netherlands. Uh, if you want to hear more on that front about you know the the Netherlands and how they gained their independence, of course, episode 68 to 69, 80 years war, get across it, independent Netherlands, good on you. But uh, the Batavia is, uh, as, as it sets off from, uh, from Texel in 1628, it is full as a gook with treasure. There are 12 chests stuffed with silver and gold. There are expensive paintings to be used as gifts. There are you know, big bloody bags of jewels and gems, all sorts of valuable stuff. And the bloke in charge of this whole thing is a merchant named Francisco Pelsert. And this bloke oversaw the captain, whose name was Arian Jacobs, and the undermerchant, who was Geronimus Cornelius. I suppose it's probably Geronimus. I don't know. Dutch is the weirdest language on earth, so I'm just going to go with Geronimus here. Now, this was uh, this may seem like a sort of weird power structure, but this was this was very common with the Dutch East India Company. You had uh, you had usually two people in charge of the, sh- of the ship: one as a merchant, one as a captain. So, very very normal uh, state of affairs. But as we say, as I say, Pelsert, as as the as the chief merchant, he was the one. He was the big boss. He was the head chief. So that's you know these three blokes: Pelsert, uh, Jacobs, the captain, and Cornelius, the undermerchant. They're the main uh, sort of uh, the principal characters in this tale. So make sure you remember them there. Um, and Cornelius in particular, he's a very important character. He was a, a bankrupt pharmacist uh, who was running away from the Netherlands because uh, of he, he'd been accused of some light heresy. So he was trying to get away from that by fleeing to the other side of the world. Uh, and this bloke, as you'll discover, was a bit of a loose cannon, to put it very mildly. So keep his name in mind. Anyway, Pelsett and Jacobs, they already didn't, uh, they, they didn't get on. They already knew each other and, that, and uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't like each other much at all. 
they had had a, an altercation in the past somewhere where Jacobs tried to make a fool of Pelsert or something. I, I don't exactly know what happened, but the, 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 uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is they didn't get on at all. But you know who did get on very well is Jacobs and Cornelius because these blokes, they became as thick as thieves once, uh, uh, once the ship got underway. Now, aside from these three blokes, the ship was carrying uh, about 320 people in total. Two thirds of them were crewmen and officers on the ship itself, while the rest were made up. Uh, the rest of the the crew was, or the rest of the people on board make up, were made up of uh, of Dutch soldiers and some civilian passengers there. Anyway, the Batavia. It's one of many ships, one of seven ships that was travelling in a convoy. Uh, all the way to the Dutch East Indies, to Indonesia there. And uh, they, uh, you know, the, the the ships, they all set off, no worries at all, and they reached the Cape of Good Hope without too many issues. There you go, there's a storm here or there, or not, you know, nothing, nothing to write home about. But after leaving the southern tip of Africa, after the voyage to the south of Africa, they'd moved, obviously, they continue across the Indian Ocean towards uh, towards Southeast Asia here. After uh, after leaving, after, you know, heading across the Indian Ocean, things start to take a bit of a turn because Jacobs and Cornelius, right, they'd put their heads together. Obviously, you know, they're, they're getting on very well. They're good mates. And, and neither of them are big, fan of, big fans of Pelsert here. They're, they're, they're not fans of, the, of the, the chief merchant at all. And so they start to come up with a bit of a, you know, a bit of a plan, a villainous plan here to seize control of the ship and its treasure from the control of Pelsert and, of course, all the rest of the people who are on board there. So these two mutineers, they begin to have a quiet word with, you know, with all the other people here and there on the ship, recruiting people on their side and sharing their plan with those who they thought, you know, might be on board with uh, seizing control of the ship, running away with all the treasure. Because they wanted to, they, this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to take over the ship and they wanted to, to, to use the treasure. This, this was seriously their plan. They wanted to set up a brand new kingdom somewhere with their ill-gotten riches. You know, they wanted to go and bloody be pirate kings on the high seas. I mean, talk about a bloody lofty goal. But all the same, quite a few blokes on the ship, they were game. They were, you know, they were all about this plan. And so they signed up uh, along with the mutineers to, uh, you know, to join forces with, uh, with, with Jacobs and Cornelius here, you know, against Pelsert. So... After leaving Africa, sometime after leaving Africa, Pelsert fell ill. He was very unwell indeed, and this is the point at when the mut- uh, the, the point at which the mutineers made their move. Pelsert is in bed, you know, he's bloody rocking and rolling, having a terrible time, bloody spewing up everywhere, you know, just generally just as sick as a dog he was. And at this point, Jacobs steers the Batavia away from the convoy, so it was alone in the middle of the open ocean. It was it was they they they'd evaded the convoy, they got away from the other Dutch ships that were heading to Indonesia, and now all of a sudden. Right, the ship is out in the middle of nowhere with uh, with no one else around, and it's this point now that Cornelius got some of the other mutineers to start causing all sorts of trouble on the ship, harassing civilian passengers, especially the women that were on board as well. They started, uh, you know, going after them, making making life miserable for more or less everyone on board there, especially as I say, these civilian women. And the plan, the reason they were doing this is the plan was for Pelsert to try to discipline. They, they wanted Pelt to sort of trick or bait Pelsert into coming out, disciplining these sailors, and then Cornelius would try to portray the punishment they received as, as unfair and unwarranted, and, and so and by doing that, you know, bring more and more people onto their side with the mutiny, and then spark it off and, and seize control of the ship once Pelsert had sort of been painted as this, uh, you know, as, as this tyrant almost. But this never happened. This never happened because Pelsert, he was too sick. He was, he was too sick to do anything about these, too sick to act, and so the mutinous sailors – 
went unpunished. And this means that, you know, with with near chaos reigning on the ship for, for much of this voyage here, the Batavia continued further and further off course. It's sailing off course with Jacob sort of, you know, making his best guess at where at where the ship is and where it's going. But these waters are, you know, not fully charted and they don't know. And again, they don't have the best navigational equipment to, to figure out exactly where they are. And as a result, right, disaster strikes on the 4th of June in 1629 when the Batavia hits a reef off of the west coast of Australia. Now, it hit a reef just next to a small island that's today called Beacon Island, and, and Beacon Island is part of a, a long string of islands that runs sort of north-south, just off the coast of Western Australia, uh, about 100 kilometres off the coast of where uh, Geraldton is, right? Anyway, the ship, it becomes stranded on the reef. It's, you know, bloody filled full of holes, and, and it, it doesn't quite, you know, sink straight to the bottom, but uh, it, it's in a very, very bad way. And, of course, all of those that are aboard attempt to, uh, you know, to get off the ship and make it to some of the nearby islands. They can see a couple here, there, and nearby and obviously the closest one being uh, what what today is called Beacon Island. Now some unfortunately they lose their lives. Some some just drown and uh, and uh, you know sink down to J- Davy Jones locker there. But um, by loading up the Batavia's longboat and some of the smaller boats, the yawls and uh, and rowboats and whatever else, uh, they were able they were able to transport a lot of people to the nearby islands. Between two hundred and fifty and three hundred people uh, were saved. We don't exactly know how many people uh, drowned once you know while trying to escape the islands, but there, there were at least a few. The problem was, however, the problem was once they get to these islands. Well, once they get to this island, Beacon Island, now there's no fresh water. There's no water on the island. They're reliant on the Batavia stores. There's, 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 you know, a little bit of food. There's, there are some seals and some, or some sea lions and some birds and that sort of stuff. But there's no fresh water, and so they're completely reliant on the Batavia stores. And of course, the, these stores are not infinite, right? They'd managed to salvage some of the supplies from the shipwreck, but the situation was hopeless in the long term. There's no way that they could, you know, sustain themselves on this island, island, uh, you know, as, as, as time went on, um, because, you know. While they might be able to, you know, hunt a seal or, you know, shoot down a bird or something like that, there was no way, no way that they could survive without access to fresh water and proper supplies. So, as a result, after scouting, you know, the island, some of the smaller nearby islands as well, finding nothing, Pelsert decides, he decides he's going to use the longboat to sail to the mainland and search for water there. Now, around 40 people went with him on this voyage, 40 people, uh, one of whom was Jacobs, actually, the, the captain he was taken along, uh, and a bunch of other, some of the civilians and some of the other more high-ranking officers uh, from the ship got on this longboat with uh, with the captain, oh, sorry, not with the captain, with the, with the, the chief merchant and the captain, uh, Pelsert and Jacobs, and they went off uh, to, towards, across to the Australian mainland uh, to search for water. Now, as I say, most of the high-ranking officers went on the longboat with Pelsert. This means that Cornelius was left in charge. He was the third in command of the entire voyage, and as a result, he was left in charge of the people that remained behind on these desert islands. Now, I don't know how much you know about Australia, right? But it's not known for its abundance of water, especially not out west, where it's more or less, you know, just a desert as far as the eye can see. And this meant that when Pelsert and Jacobs and the rest of them went off to hunt for water on the Australian mainland, they found diddly squat. They found a whole lot of dry desert and not much else at all. So after hunting up and down the coast for a source of fresh water, Pelsert realised that it was absolutely pointless. It was pointless to continue looking for water in this way, and they were going to run out of supplies themselves. So he made the decision instead to sail to Indonesia in a longboat. 
This was a journey of over 3,000 kilometers. And despite being an extremely dangerous thing to do, the entire crew of the longboat, they managed to make it. Unbelievably, between exposure and cramped conditions and a lack of supplies, this sort of voyage was incredibly risky, an incredibly risky thing to attempt. But uh, they all managed to make it. This this bold decision made by Pelsert paid off. And uh, as they sailed up the coast of Western Australia, they did manage to find some fresh water on the way. They stopped the longboat and, you know, and a few creeks and streams here and there that fed into the ocean, spent a night or two ashore here and there. And miraculously, after 33 days of sailing in this longboat, you know, up north and then towards uh, the, the island chain of Indonesia, it all ended well for Pelsert and, and, and the others. Well, actually, almost all of them, any, as you'll see, not, not quite all of them, um, as it arrived in the Dutch East Indies, uh, specifically the city of Batavia, just like the ship today, uh, Batavia known as, as Jakarta. Now, after landing, Pelsert ordered the arrest of Jacobs and a few other a few other of the officers and men uh, for their conduct, right? And uh, Jacobs was charged with negligence, not with mutiny, but with negligence for having let the ship fl- uh, uh, flounder off course and, and, and managed to run aground like that. Because, check this out, Pelsert didn't realise that Jacob... Jacobs was complicit in any kind of mutiny. He didn't realise that there was any kind of plot going on to have unseated him from the, uh, you know, from command of the ship there like that because he'd been sick in his room. So all he does is he has Jacobs uh, locked up there and uh, and uh, and punished for, uh, for for just negligence for you know for not not for actually obviously he'd be executed straight away for for mutiny but for negligence the punishment was a little different. And um, it was it was yeah as I say locked up after Pelsert dobbed him into the governor of Batavia the the city not the ship. Uh, and the governor also decided to mount a rescue effort for all the treasure that had been left behind on the Batavia, the, the ship, not the city. Just think, there's you know, there's all the treasure back there. It's been left this poor, all by itself. This poor, poor treasure. No one will look after it. And you know, so he sends off Pelsey. He says, "Go and get this treasure." And the, and oh, what the the all the survivors? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, bring back the survivors as well, you know, if you must, if if there's room. If there's room, that is just, yeah, I guess bring them back as well. But make sure make sure you get that treasure. He put Pelsert in uh, in charge of another ship, the Sardam, and he ordered him uh, to head back to the wreck of the Batavia and and rescue all the treasure and, oh, oh, and the survivors. Yes, the survivors, well, don't forget the survivors do get them again if there's room. So Jacobs, he languishes away in prison in Batavia and sort of falls off the face of the earth, really. History kind of forgets him from this point onwards, but Pelsert's story isn't quite over yet as he sails back south towards these islands off the coast of, uh, of West Australia to retrieve uh, the treasure and the survivors. But what has become of those survivors and in the meantime in the meanwhile what has happened to uh, to the survivors back on the island you remember that i said cornelius had been put in charge he'd been put in charge of everyone uh, back there on the island and unfortunately this is not a decision that ended up going well for anyone concerned it turned out that this bloke was just an absolute psychopath. Absolute psychopath he was. He hadn't forgotten about his plans to uh, to, to use uh, uh, the riches from the Batavia, from the, the ship, not the city, uh, to to found his own new kingdom. And now that he's in charge of this sort of, you know, little fiefdom on top of this island here, uh, it goes straight to his head. It, he And this had some pretty dire consequences for those who were stranded on the islands, I can tell you. Because this lunatic, Cornelius, he hatches a plan. He has a plan. He decides he's going to seize any rescue vessel that turns up. He knows that uh, Pelsert probably, you know, after not coming back for, you know, months and months, he knows that probably there's a rescue on the way. And so Cornelius decides that he's going to that he's going to seize any ship that comes. He's going to use it to sail to who knows where and uh, and start his new life, you know, as as a, as a pirate king. So he decides that the first order of business is to take control of the survivors and install himself as what was 
you know, pretty much amount, what pretty much amounted to a, a dictator here. He firstly seized control of all of the supplies and all of the weapons that the survivors had, and then he stockpiles them all under his control, guarded by the uh, the mutineers that he recruited uh, on the ship previously, you know, his, his little gang of henchmen there. And next, he eliminated all of the soldiers as potential threats uh, because, you know, he, he, he knew that they would stay loyal to the uh, to the East India Company there. And, and he knew that he needed to get them out of the way if he wanted to sort of, you know, completely seize, uh, seize power here. And so he, he, he removes them as a, as a potential threat by uh, organizing a little expedition to go and search for fresh water on some of the neighboring islands. Now, he goes to the bloke in charge of the soldiers. This fellow, his name is, uh, is Viva Hayes. And he says to Hayes, now, listen here, mate. See that island over there off on, the, on the horizon? Bloody long way off, I know. But check this out. I reckon, I reckon there might be water on that one. And Hay goes, do you reckon? That is, I'll tell you what, that'd be bloody good because, you know, we don't, obviously, we don't have too much to go around here, do we? And Cornelius says, mate, you're absolutely spot on. Well, you really don't. So I reckon what we do, you and your soldier mates, you should head over there and you should check it out, see if there's fresh water there. You know, maybe it's dangerous, so it's good to get the, you know, get, send you soldiers, you blokes, I'm sure you'll be able to handle anything like that. And if, and, and, and if there is any fresh water, you can send us back a signal, we'll come and get you. And Hay goes, mate, I love this plan. Fantastic idea. How do you want to do it? I'll go and round up the boys and we'll get ready. And Cornelius says, no worries. Tell you what, my boys, will, my boys will row you out over there. You have a hunt about for the water. When you find it, light a little signal fire. We'll see the smoke and we'll head back over with everyone else. Or we'll come and pick you up. Whatever you like, it'll be easy. Don't even worry about it. So... Hayes gets all the soldiers organised and they pop into a little boat that had been sal- uh, salvaged from the Batavia. They've got a couple of boats, that, you know, the yawls, the smaller rowboats, not the big long boat that have been taken off, but a couple of smaller boats. And uh, the soldiers get loaded up there and, uh, and, and Cornelius has his henchmen row them over to one of these other little islands there. However... He was certain that the soldiers wouldn't find any water. He was certain that they weren't, they weren't, you know, they weren't going to be able to find any sort of supply or anything else on, uh, there on this island and uh, was just sending them off to die, sending them off to die of thirst and starvation. He was lying through his teeth about going and collecting them. His plan all along was just to maroon them there and, and wait for them to you know, keel over of thirst and exhaustion. He had no intention of, of, of uh, retrieving them at all. So already you can see that this bloke, this bloke's an absolute maniac. He's an absolute monster with very little regard for other human life, as you might expect. But, but as you also might expect, it only got worse from here. Because realising that there were too many people and not enough supplies, Cornelius then uh, then begins to engineer the deaths of more and more of his fellow survivors. He never killed anyone himself, with one notable exception, as we'll talk about, but he manipulated or tricked people into into putting themselves into lethal situations or just gave the orders to his henchmen who would then go and do his dirty work for him. For example... He sent another group of people, not just the soldiers, off to another island that was that was near. It was it was you know much more it was much more close by uh, to search for water again on this other island it's called Seal Island. Right, so sent them off over there um, in the boats, uh, and then obviously they do the same trick. They come back without them on the boats and just leave them there to die. You know, expecting them to you know keel over of thirst, whatever. Um, but because the island wasn't too far away, uh, the people on the original island they could see. Uh, these people who have been tricked to go onto Seal Island, they could see them milling about on the beach, taking their bloody sweet time in dying, obviously after not having found any water there. And so when Cornelius saw that they were taking longer than expected to, to keel over and cark it here, he sent back the boat with his henchmen with instructions to uh, hurry the whole process along. So these mutineers, they sailed back over and murdered these poor, starving, dehydrated, exhausted people there on the island, which of course was entirely bereft of food and water. And these weren't the only murders that the henchmen per- uh, perpetrated here because Cornelius, he would send off other people that he wanted whacked off. Nope, that's not, nope, that's definitely not the term I was looking for there. Nope, definitely not that. He wanted the, he wanted the people either whacked or offed. 
not those two things together. Anyway, the henchman went and whacked and or offed people. I'm, you know, definitely didn't do the other thing to them, I would say. Um, on these little little boat trips, right? So he get he get whoever he wanted killed uh, on the boat with a with a couple of henchmen. They they go off on some pointless trip somewhere, you know, under this I don't know, going fishing or something stupid that you know obviously was completely just a distraction. And uh, the henchmen would then wait out there wait till they were out of sight of the island before pushing these uh, pushing these poor people into the water and drowning them. Simple as that. Back on the island as well, the the, the butchery was uh, you know was continuing even there. Anyone who was sick or infirm was was quietly killed, including children. Um, a small infant became the only person killed by Cornelius himself, which you know shows the the depth of this maniac's depravity here. But the reason that he was killing all these people, the reason that all these people were losing their lives, is because he wanted to bring the population of the survivors down to under fifty. He wanted just forty five people left after after they'd all been uh, after they'd all been you know whacked and or offed. Uh, in order in order to make the supplies last for as long as possible. And this means that all up, between 110 and 125 people were murdered on the orders of Cornelius here. Some of these, it's thought, were done for pleasure or for sport by uh, Cornelius' incre- increasingly sick and, and twisted gang of mutineers here. So it was an absolute bloodbath. It was it was, it was was just utterly horrible for, you know, for, for all these poor, poor people who were stranded off in the middle of nowhere and now, you know, these these barbarians are, 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 have taken control of the whole situation and are, and are killing people left, right and centre. But one day, one day, as Cornelius is continuing this you know, this cull of all the people uh, on the island here. One day, his planning was turned on its head when smoke signals were spotted from the island to the north, the one where the soldiers had been sent to go and find, you know, fresh water or whatever else, and found it they had. They had found fresh water after all, and their little island was also home uh, to a colony of wallabies, which provided a steady source of food for the soldiers in addition to the, uh, the, you know, the, the natural spring of fresh water there. So now Cornelius is in big trouble because he has to deal with the knowledge that the soldiers were alive and well on this other island. And the reason this is a big problem for his plans is, you know, because he wants to seize an incoming rescue ship, as you know, as I mentioned. But any vessel that would arrive was almost certainly going to come from the north where the soldiers were, the further, further north than he was, and it, would, and it would then collect the soldiers first. So he resolved, therefore, to deal with the soldiers and so planned an attack on the other island, right? So he realises that he's not going to be able to seize a rescue ship if the soldiers get there first and tell their side of the story. And so he goes, right, I've got to go and deal with this problem and go and whack these, go and go and kill the kill the kill the soldiers. Anyway, the problem was another problem here for Cornelius. This other survivors on on his island had seen the smoke signals, and some of them had snuck off to the other island before Cornelius could stop them. And the soldiers, right, who had no idea about Cornelius's you know reign of terror back on the first island, they were shocked to hear about the bloodthirsty barbarism of the mutineers. And, uh, you know, these survivors, they arrive, they tell the soldiers, oh, he's been doing this, he's been doing that, he's whacking everyone off, it's bloody terrible. Well, he's not doing that, you know, not in that sense, but he's killing a lot of people, so, you know, we're, we're not a fan of... I mean, even if you were doing the other thing, it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be a fantastic situation, perfectly capable of doing that ourselves, thank you very much. Anyway, the soldiers are, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously, they're hit for six by this news, and they don't know what to... Well, they actually do know what to do. They do, they know exactly what to do. Very, very cleverly, Hayes and the rest of the soldiers, they realise that Cornelius and his men were likely to mount an attack. These absolute savages were going to, you know, were obviously going to get on the front foot and continue this, uh, you know, this 
this uncontained uh, this uncontained campaign of murder against everyone. And so they recognise, geez, this bloke's going to be over here with the weapons quick smart, so we better set ourselves up and, uh, and ready our defences here. The reason they were so sure that uh, Cornelius was, was going to attack and, and want to kill them uh, was not only because he was uh, because he thought that they, threatened, they you know presented a threat to his authority, but also they re- they realised they, they they figured out his supplies are going to be running low. He's going to be running low on food. He's going to be going to be running low on water. And this island now he knows has got a you know a source of both these things because we've sent up the signals. So we've we've got to get ready for this bloke to come over here and try to you know, claim what he thinks is his. So, in anticipation of the attack, the soldiers armed themselves as best they could. They put together makeshift weapons with stuff on the island that, uh, as well as bits and pieces that had sort of washed up on shore from the wreck of the Batavia. There, so they got you know sticks and bits of metal, whatever else they like that. But they also built themselves a little uh, a little fort out of rocks and bits of coral. Uh, to give themselves the best chance to beat Cornelius and his armed men by giving themselves a little, you know, a little defensive bastion that they could fight out of here. Now, this tiny little fort—it's not much more than just a, a little rectangle of, of rock that had been piled up there, but it still stands today on what is now known as West Wallaby Island. It is the oldest structure built by Europeans in all of Australia, and it still stands today. You can still go and visit it today out on this tiny little island. Anyway. Back on the first island, Cornelius was doing exactly what the soldiers expected him to do. He was arming his men and preparing to attack the soldiers and kill them and take control of the source of fresh water. Now, Cornelius and his henchmen, they got into those little boats and they sailed over to the soldiers' island, of course, armed to the teeth. They've got their muskets, they've got the swords, they've got whatever else that they've got from the Batavia, the the, the ship, not the city. Uh, And they arrived to find the soldiers huddled together in little makeshift fort with their sticks and their stones and whatever else. The thing was, however... You would think that even you know the the the, the mutineers—they're fully armed, they're ready to go, they're on the front foot, getting ready to uh, getting ready to, to to swish the willow about here. Supplies had been strictly rationed and were running out back on the original island, right? While the mutineers—they're in much much worse nick than the soldiers, much much worse nick. The soldiers have been eating—you know—they're growing fat on wallaby and they've got all the water they can drink, having a great time. The wallabies hopping about everywhere, the freshwater spring. The soldiers have plenty of food, plenty of drink on their new island, much much better shape than the mutineers. In addition, let's not forget, they were just actual literal soldiers. They were trained professional soldiers that, you know, were, were very, very ready to kill people um, and proved that the mutineers, once the once the battle was joined between these two forces, the mutineers were no match whatsoever for the soldiers. And after a very short battle, they had their asses handed them on a silver platter, despite being better armed and, and, and you know, despite being uh, very ready to, to, to get uh, to get into get stuck into this fight here. The soldiers were able to beat out the mutineers very, very handily, very easily with their makeshift weapons and their little fort there like that. So uh, the mutineers absolutely, they, they, they lost the day completely. Cornelius, it was so bad for the mutineers, Cornelius was actually captured. He was captured, he was taken prisoner, while the other mutineers, they retreated to, uh, to one of their little boats. And just as the mutineers were preparing, regrouping and preparing for another attack, because, you know, because history every now and again appreciates neatness, sails appeared on the horizon, and before the battle could begin again, Pelsert's arrival stopped everyone dead in their tracks. Pelsert had been gone for three months. It had taken him, you know, as we talked about, over a month to get back to Indonesia, but it had taken him almost twice that to get back to the islands because, again, the charts, the navigation instruments, all the stuff they had to actually find where they were weren't particularly well-developed, and uh, and, and, and Pelsert didn't have much of a clear to, to hunt about to try to find these islands, and it took him, again, double the time to, to get back as it did to, uh, to, uh, to get away. But arrive he does 
And remember, remember how at primary school, right? Remember when you were a kid at primary school and uh, if you, if you, you know, started fighting with another kid or you got in trouble and there's another kid involved, or whatever, you would both race to the teacher to tell on the other one before the other one could. Like generally, whoever got to the teacher first would be treated much more favorable. They tell their, they tell their side of the story first and, and have a better chance of getting the other one in, in big trouble. That is exactly what happens here. Both the mutineers and the soldiers raced into the small boats and went at it full tilt toward Pelsert's ship so as to tell their side of the story before the other one could. Imagine that. Both of these boats filled with grown men, desperate to get to the teacher first, they didn't get in trouble, thrashing about with the oars, spurred on by the idea of detention or, you know, actually more likely, probably just execution, which is which is just as bad, really. Um, but both the mutineers and the soldiers, they strained to get there as, as fast as they could, but it was the soldiers that had the better of it, and so it was Viva Hayes who reached Pelsert's ship first. Hayes quickly dobbed on the mutineers, and Pelsert rounded on the small band of mutineers with the crew that he'd brought with him from Batavia, the, the city, not the ship, and they quickly defeated these mutineers, and they were all taken prisoner. But this created a new problem here, because once Cornelius and all of his men were taken prisoner, Pelsert realised that the ship that he'd brought with him wasn't as big as, the, as, as wasn't as big as the Batavia that both well both the city and the ship come to think of it here, and so bringing back every single person who survived the wreck, even after all the killings had taken place, was going to make things uncomfortably cramped aboard uh, aboard Pelsert's ship there. So as a result. Pelsert decided to hold a little trial, a little impromptu trial for Cornelius and some of the other mutineers then and there, right on the island, and he acted as the judge himself. And it won't surprise you to learn, I'm sure, that Cornelius and most of the mutineers were immediately found extremely guilty, and Pelsert wasted no time in sentencing them to death. The sentenced mutineers were taken back to uh, to Seal Island, the uh, the island uh, where they'd sent and murdered some of the survivors, the the ones that were sent off on the on the little boats there, like that. And it was there that the mutineers also met their end. Almost all the mutineers were hanged there, and Cornelius and some of the other uh, the ones who were sort of in charge had their hands cut off before they were hanged as this sort of weird extra punishment thing. I don't really get it, but whatevs probably deserved it to be honest after what he did. But two, uh, two other mutineers that weren't executed uh, on this island were marooned on the Australian mainland and were never heard from again. They, uh, they, 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 there's some thought they may have made contact with the local indigenous population and, and sort of, you know, ingratiated themselves there. Or they may have just, you know, died. That also probably was something that, you know, could have happened to them there. Everyone else, however piled onto the ship with Pelsert, and after Pelsert had secured all but two of the 12 treasure chests that had sunk with the Batavia, they set off again. This was not an easy task, by the way. Him getting the, him getting all the crew and, and all the survivors back on the ship, as well as a couple of mutineers that were taken prisoner, much, much easier than getting the treasure chests. Uh, the treasure chests had to be dredged up from the bottom of the sea floor. Dr- uh, divers had to drag up these heavy chests that were laden with gold and silver from uh, from the bottom of the sea there next to uh, next to the wreck. And I mean, they, they did get it done, but it, it, it took a long, long time. Actually, no, they, did, they didn't quite get all of them. They, they only got 10 of the 12 chests. Uh, one of the chests the mutineers had, had, had dredged up and, and uh, broken into. So there was nothing left in that one. And another one uh, was lodged under one of the Batavia's cannons, and they had, you know, they had Buckley's chance of, of, of getting. I mean, it was hard enough getting a chest up. Never mind trying to lift a cannon up underwater in order to get, to, you know, to get the chest up there from underneath it. In any case, with the survivors and the treasure secured, Pelsert and his crew they sailed away from the Batavia, the the ship, not the city, and uh, sailed off to Batavia, the the city, not the ship. And it's there 
that finally our story comes to an end. A handful of mutineers who had escaped uh, uh, Pelsert's uh, impromptu island trial were instead tried on Batavia. Uh, one, who was said to be Cornelia's second in command, was broken on the wheel, which is an extremely gruesome uh, form of torture and execution. If you have, if you're curious about it, I will let you look it up in your own time. Uh, while other mutineers were keel-hauled, were flogged, or, or were dropped from the yard, um, all sorts of you know pretty barbaric punishments meted out to them. But fair enough, again, considering what they'd done to the uh, to the poor survivors who had made it, uh, you know, after the off the wreck of the Batavia there. But they weren't the only ones punished. Unfortunately, poor old Pelsert didn't escape punishment either. Now, while he wasn't subjected to any physical torture. He was determined to have been partially responsible for allowing the mutiny to happen in the first place, and so he was heavily fined, he was financially ruined, and then he died within a year or two of this, of this whole affair uh, taking place there. So very sad end for him. In fact, the only person who really got a very happy ending, the only hero to emerge from this, uh, this whole mutiny on the Batavia was none other than Weber Hayes, who was promoted, he was the leader of the soldiers, and he got promoted even further. He was promoted, he was given a pay raise, all, all of the other soldiers on, on the, under, that served under him were also given uh, smaller promotions as well. And the small fort that still stands on East Wallaby Island, even today, still bears his name. Over 300 people set sail on the Batavia from the Netherlands, but only 116 of them ever made it to the Dutch East Indies alive after this mutiny and, of course, all of the horrible murder. The wreck of the Batavia was lost to history for a very long time after this whole affair, after Pelsert left it behind in, in 1629. Some British naval surveyors may have come across it in 1840. We're not sure, 100% sure about that. But the real rediscovery of the wreck came in 1963, over 300 years after it was lost, by a lobster fisherman named David Johnson. The Dutch government officially transferred the rights to, uh, to Dutch wrecks in Australian waters to Australia in 1972, and it was from that point onwards that scientists and marine archaeologists investigated the wreck very closely indeed. And these days, you can see the excavated hull of the Batavia, with its bloody history laid out bare for all to see, on display in the WA Shipwrecks Museum in Perth. And even today, to this very day, out on the islands where the Batavia was wrecked, alongside the cannons and the treasure from its hold, still lie the bones of those who lost their lives almost 400 years ago. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the mutiny on the Batavia. Of course, another another nice big helping of naval history. I'm sure it won't be long before we're back on the high seas again with more maritime history. I know, I know, I know you all love it. Anyway, closing out the show as usual with the norming, normal boring housekeeping announcements. Uh, Halfhousehistory.net is the website. Find all the episodes there. Um, thank you to all the people who have jumped on iTunes and submitted reviews. I've been told by people much smarter than me that this does help the uh, the algorithmic success of the show. So if you get the chance, jump onto iTunes and leave a review. I'd, I'd really, I really would appreciate that. It'd be you know, a bit of a favour for me, so thank you so much. Uh, but you can you, you can find the links to subscribe on iTunes and on Spotify and whatever else, of course, at the website, halfhousehistory.net. There's also a contact form there if you want to get in touch with me. You can uh, send in suggestions for, uh, for future episodes or, or give me any feedback or anything else like that. It's always fantastic to hear from people. Uh, a special thank you goes to the, uh, the, the well, hundred or so people that are supporting me on patreon it's unbelievable that you're continuing to i was sort of expecting everyone to just you know 
cancel their subscriptions as soon as they got their free merch bundles. But, you know, a lot of people seem to have stuck by me. So thank you so much for that. It, I, I can't say how much I appreciate it. And uh, your merch bundles are, of course, in the post. They should have arrived. Well, they should start to arrive, I guess, depending on where you are. It can take some time depending on, uh, you know, which part of the world you're in. So uh, keep an eye on your mailboxes for them. Um, and if you want to get your hand hands on some merch, uh, you know, and you, you miss the, the opportunity to do it via Patreon, the Half History shop will be launching in early December. I've got a couple of uh, loose ends to tie it before that all takes place, but all going well. Hopefully I can get it all through and it'll, be, it'll, uh, it'll open up in the first week of December. I'll keep you updated there, but uh, you'll, you'll be able to buy T-shirts and, uh, and, and little you know, magnets and badges and note, notebooks and, and whatever else. Anyway. That's enough boring nonsense for me. Going to close out the show as normal with the usual uh, usual question posed on Reddit here, and uh, we've got a, obviously you know we, we the, the this is a this despite taking place mostly in Australia and Indonesia, this is a a Dutch story about Dutch people, and uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, the the Netherlands is uh, statistically speaking the tallest nation on earth. The people of the Netherlands are, tend to be aver- on average taller than everyone else on earth. And uh, this leads to the question posed by uh, Reddit scientist White Vendetta, who asks, are Dutch people so tall because most of the Netherlands is below sea level? <laughs> <laughs>